good morning. My name is Luke. Uh, I've been attending this church for about eight months now. We moved recently from Washington State, but originally from Cameroon. Be reading uh, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of God, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked countries. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Give us just a moment. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate it. Boy, that's great. If you haven't met Luke, go out of your way and meet him. He's a great guy. I've been slowly getting to know him over the last few months and really appreciate him reading for us this, this morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah. It's, uh, it's August. Uh, we're starting out uh, a new series today. We're going to be in the book of Malachi. We're actually going to walk through the, the book over the, I think, about eight lessons, if I remember right. Um, and uh, it's going to be an interesting study. It's going to be one that at times is going to challenge us. Uh, if I'm honest, I will confess that after I kind of started going through it and, and all, I started asking the Lord, uh, uh, are you sure? Is this really the one we want to go through? Uh, there's going to be times where we'll be challenged in different ways. There's going to be times where there's going to be things that we will confront and look at. Uh, that will challenge us, and there's going to be times when we may not agree, and we, we may find ourselves looking at things and, and not always uh, seeing it the same, but that's okay. We're about sitting down and taking a look at the Word of God and asking Him to teach us that we might grow in faith, that we might walk more like Christ, that as we follow Him, we would learn to to walk in humility and gracefully before our God. That we would have hearts that are humble and contrite before the Lord. That he might grow us and teach us that we might be his children as we walk after him. Um, I wanted to take a moment too this morning just as we got started. I've, there's a lot of things that are going on at NBC this fall. And if you are not aware, you need to take time to stop by the Central Hub or go on our website and there's places there to find information. But there's a lot of things that are starting to happen this fall that I'm really excited about. One of the things that's gonna be happening is on our Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, is gonna be almost like a Sunday morning. 
Uh, if you haven't heard, Awanas is now going to be moving from Sunday night to Wednesday night. Uh, Awanas is a Bible study program. If you're not familiar for that, it's going to go from kindergarten to first grade, I believe, is if, or sixth grade, I'm sorry, if, if I believe. But it's a Bible study program where if you want your children to learn God's Word and to spend time memorizing the Scripture, I would encourage you to look at this program, and it'll start happening on Wednesday nights. And I believe, is it the, boy, I just went blank, Tim, the 23rd? Oh, September the... Oh, thank you, Tim. You know, I don't know everything. I just want you to know that. <laughs> it's important that I don't know everything. Um, so babies all the way to sixth grade, you're going to want to take a look at that. Why is that valuable? Because we have some families that have, have kids that are children, and we have some that are in their youth, and our student ministry will continue to take place on Wednesday night from 7th to 12th seven to grade is the ages that it covers. Not only that, but it, we also have men's Bible studies that are going on during that time and women's Bible studies as well that are taking place on Wednesday nights. Plus this fall we're starting, and I think that's the 23rd, where, yeah, the 23rd of August, right? Where we're gonna start our Mansfield Bible Church Institute, our NBC Institute. And this fall, we will be looking at Old Testament and New Testament surveys on Wednesday nights, okay? So you want to take a look at that. You want to go in and you want to get signed up for some of those things, require signups, uh, those kinds of things, and take a look at it. But there's going to be a lot of church life of people learning to follow Jesus taking place on Wednesday nights, and we'd encourage you to join us. And also this fall, some of the neat things that are taking place, as well as even on Sunday mornings, we will start our... NBC Institute back up again, and that's the 20th, I believe, is that right? The 20th of August, and we will be doing Bible study methods during that time. Greg Buckles will be teaching that, that course. I would encourage you to study if I have my choice. I think every person in this room needs to take a course in Bible study methods. Out of all the courses I've ever taken in all of my life, in all of my studies, the most valuable course I ever took was Bible study methods. Because if I know how to study the Bible, I can take my Bible, I can sit down with you, and I can begin to look at the text and work through a text. That's why Bible, studies is so, Bible study methods is so important. I would encourage everyone here to sign up for that on a Sunday morning. And then we have to figure out a larger room. We can figure that out. Just come, right? And that'd be a part of it. So that's pretend. Another exciting thing is our young couples group has just been exploding. We've been seeing more and more young couples. And what they're going to do is they're going to start meeting on Sunday morning at the 9 a.m. They're going to be meeting over here in this smaller room right outside this little hallway here. And they're going to start meeting at 9 o'clock. So if you're a young couple and you've been coming, you're looking to connect, that'd be a great way to do that. Um, so there's a lot of exciting things. Well, next week, we're going to be starting to present our budget. Um, and that'll be presented. I'm excited about what God will have this next year. We've been looking at, as well, student building and what are our options there, hopefully in, uh, what is this, August, in September, I forgot what month of the year it is, but in September, we hope to begin to present that and begin to talk about what are our options and where we're going. A lot of neat things that God's doing, and he's doing it because of, because of you, because of us as the body of Christ, that as we walk together, as we follow after Christ, as we learn to follow after him, 
that we begin to see God do these things. There's a lot of exciting things going on, whether it's in this room over here in a, on a Sunday morning or over here in this area where there's a class going on. We're, we're seeing it down in the children's. We're, we're seeing it out in the portables. God has been good. To him be the glory and the praise forevermore. Amen. Amen. That's the amen time, just in case you've lost that one. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you and as we open up this marvelous book of Malachi, may we, Father, find ourselves encouraged and yet convicted. May we find ourselves, Father, challenged. For your word is given to us that we, Father, might be corrected in the way that we live. It also encourages in the way that we live. It reminds us, Father, of your love. It reminds us of your majesty, of your glory, of your, of your sovereignty. And that, Father, in all of these things, we find ourselves resting and trusting in you. That, Father, today we don't stand here in the confidence of our flesh. We don't stand here in the confidence of our orthodoxy. We don't stand here in the confidence, Father, of the things that we do. We stand here in the confidence of the work of Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves resting in, in his work, in his righteousness. And we call you our God and we call you our Father because of the righteousness of Christ. So God, we ask this morning that you speak to us. That you go past all the iniquities and the shortcomings and and the inabilities of the speaker, Father, and that you would speak to us, that your spirit would move among our hearts and you would not allow us to wander in darkness, but that, Father, we would walk in the light of the truth of your word, that you would confront us, that we might be more like your son, Jesus. Father, may you do your work as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Malachi, if you don't know, it's the last book of the Old Testament. If you're not sure how to find it, go to the book of Matthew, go back Go to the left, one, one chapter, right, or one book. Um, it's, the, in the, it's classified in one of the uh, minor prophets. Uh, there's nothing minor about it, just usually the size of the book when they wrote them. In Malachi, it's an interesting book. God's people had, be, begun, had returned from captivity in Babylon. Uh, they had great expectations of hope. They had, a, they had expectations of God's restoration of God's renewal of his people. Uh, they had been subjected to captivity and foreign rule, and life was hard under captivity. So as they returned, they had great expectations of blessing. They imagined the Lord would restore them in prosperity. Uh, it included the rebuilding of the temple. It included the idea or the expectation of messianic rule. Two of, the great, two of the greatest things an Israelite could hope for, but to the disappointment of the people, the temple was rebuilt, but it was much more inferior to the previous temple. To the point that the older generation, as they began to see the foundation being laid out, as they saw that, they knew it was gonna be smaller than the previous temple that had been destroyed. Even though Zerubbabel came and, and he led for the rebuilding of this temple, they saw that it was going to be smaller. And it tells us in, I think it's Ezra chapter 3, where as they saw that, the older generation who knew it was going to be more inferior to the previous began to, began to weep 
And yet the newer generation and the excitement of having the temple rebuilt are rejoicing. And it tells us there in Ezra 3 that as the, as the weeping and the rejoicing is going on, it was so loud you couldn't distinguish between the two. The expectations and the anticipation of blessings, of the presence of God, of the prosperity of God in Malachi were greatly lacking. Instead, God's people found themselves in poverty and tremendous foreign powers around them. So as we look at this book, as we begin to look at Malachi, we have a serious, serious case of unmet expectations. If you're walking in this morning and you're going, oh, Greg, unmet expectations, I feel like that sometimes with God all the time, right? I mean, there's so many times in our own lives that we expect God to do certain things and when it doesn't happen, we find ourselves no different than the people in the time of Malachi. And these folks in Malachi, they weren't handling it very well. Among the people of God, it appeared that the presence of God was very distant and we've been there where at times it seems like God is so distant, he's so far away. And it's really in those moments that right in front of you, just like here in the book of Malachi, when we walk into it, there's like a fork in the road. There's a fork in the road for the Jewish people here, but for us too in our context. Some of us walked in this morning with great difficulties and there's a great wondering, well, where is God in the midst of this? Does God really love me? And there's a fork in the road which way do you go? When you're disappointed with God, when you feel down and let down by him, when your expectations are unmet in terms of what you think God should do for you, when God seems distant, distant, sorry. And here's the question. What do you do? What do you do? What is your response when life goes not as expected? I, I'm older, but I'm not an old man yet. But I've lived long enough to realize that life just doesn't go as expected. And there's uncertainties and there's things that happen in our lives and where do you go in times like that? How do you respond in life when God seems far away or when our expectations aren't met? It can literally define a season of our life or even our life. How many times I've seen people walk away from God and walk away from the body of Christ because of unmet expectations of God? Who say, I tried that. And God didn't respond the way that I thought he should have. And they walk away. Where, where even worse, they redefined truth in order to meet their truth. What do you do? What the nation of Israel did in the midst of these unmet expectations is they began to languish in their unfulfilled hope. They became hard-hearted they became indifferent. 
They, lure, they were lured into spiritual sleep and became very casual and low regard for God. I've been amazed at, to be honest with you at times when I've read this book and I've thought through it, that some of the similarities of our day have we not grown casual with God? Have we grown to a place of low regard? I was encouraged this week when I read in a post by a believer who was talking about their life and that it's every moment, it's every second, and it's for the sake of our kids. It's for the sake of God's people. I, th I think oftentimes, God, who are you that allow me to be a spokesman? And I mean, who am I? And so many times in opening up the word of God, I'm just blown away by the truth. It is every moment. It is every second. This life is, is difficult and it's hard at times. And we have a tendency to judge our God rather than humble ourselves before him. Dear people of God, we need to move away from that. We need to turn away from and turn to him. We need to have hearts that are broken and contrite before him. One commentator said about this passage that God's people may have been freed from blatant idolatry, but theirs had become a dead orthodoxy meaning they had a form of religion before God, but no real relationship with God. There was knowledge of God's word, but no devotion. There was no reverence. There was no joy. There was no true adoration. I mean, sure, they came to church, but there was no awe of God. I mean, they heard the songs but there was no passion in the words. Sure, they sat through the teaching of God's word, but there was no heart change. They passed the offering, but there was no generosity or sacrifice of giving from their lives. So the book of Malachi literally becomes a wake-up call of renewed faithfulness to the Lord God Almighty. Lord has challenged me in so many ways already in this book that I pray that he challenges you. There are times when you will be aggravated. There will be times when you'll be frustrated. There'll be times when it won't make sense. There will be those moments when you ask yourself questions with regards to God's word. And the reality is the real question is who is God and who are you? In Malachi chapter 3, God says, return to me and I will return to you. Is this picture of God calling his people back, moving them away from a casual or a worthless orthodoxy into faith. He also said in chapter 3 that really astonished me, then once more, you shall see the distinction between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Does our culture need to see a distinction? It does. 
Do those around you see a distinction in your life? As you follow Jesus, is there a distinction between you and the ways of the world? That's a question to ask. God brings studies like this and like Malachi into our lives to grow us and to teach us that we might follow after Christ, that we might clean away, that we might break away those things in our lives that hinder us from understanding the power and the reality of the truth of who our God is. And sometimes we resist in our own desire to want to be in control and to hold and to keep things a certain way. We want to fight for our lifestyle. We want to fight for, our, for the things that we possess instead of understanding that all of these things belong to him. And we humbly submit ourselves to him, an almighty God that we trust. Malachi is a book that will challenge us. Is there a distinction in your life between the passion for this world and a passion for God? It's a question I ask myself every day. I always challenge myself. I'm always thinking and looking at and seeing the foolishness of my own life. And there's only rest in Jesus. In verse 1, he says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I want you to notice right off the bat in this passage, this is not a word from man. Boy, I'm just looking at time. You know, I hope you all brought your sack lunch today. <laughs> I just looked up and saw the time. I'll try to move a little quicker. We have a word from God today. That's what he says right here. In fact, it kind of fits, didn't it? I didn't mean to do that. It's, notice it's a word not from man, but from God. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Israel. And here that word oracle, it has the idea of message, but it can also be translated burden, a burden. Some translations use that. The idea of the burden is the idea of urgency or the seriousness of the message, that God has a burden of a word of the Lord to Israel. God has a message for us, that the Lord God has a message for his people and there is an urgency and a seriousness to deliver this to his people. The very name of Malachi means my messenger or messenger of Lord. And I want you to consider for a moment how important it is that God has a message for his people. Because if God didn't love us, he wouldn't speak to us. Because God is speaking, because he has a message, because he's given us this book, is a demonstration of his love. That we might be growing in Christ. It's important. God is saying to his people here, I have a word from, for you from me. Because you need to be confronted. Sometimes we need to be confronted. Because we need to know that he loves us. Because we need to be strengthened by his word. Because we need to be encouraged. And God says, my word will do that. That is why we want to, at least at NBC, but we all believers should have the mentality that this is the truth. This is what we rest in. And it's important to understand this, the importance of the word of the Lord for my life and for your life and for this church. 
And Parker was just giving us a definite FM. That's is absolutely truth, right? That was Parker's amen this morning. Just so you know. And we can't argue with her, right? Verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. This is really the heart behind this book. That God is saying, I have loved you. And especially in these first five verses, but God is saying, I have loved you. You could read it as a past tense alone and only that I have loved you. But in the Hebrew, it really has a unique picture. It's not just that I have loved you, but I do love you and I will love you. It's a continuation. In fact, as we think about the love of God this morning, I think there's kind of three characteristics that I want to throw out there. The first is that God's love is a sovereign love. God is not required to do anything except that is directed by his own character and being. Understand that. One of the things you're going to hear me talk about today is that if we're going to define the love of God, we have to define it in his terms. Because as God, he doesn't do anything outside of his own character and being. Love proceeds from his character and his being. Thus, any definition of God's love that can be separated from what he is or what he does is not true. And we live in a day that a lot of people are talking about what the love of God is who have never opened up the scriptures and it just drives me nuts. God defines who he is and God defines his love. Secondly, God's love is unconditional. The motivation for God loving us comes entirely from God and is not derived from anything that we are or pretend to be. It's totally motivated by him. It proceeds from his character and his being and it's unconditional and it's not motivated. God didn't just look down here and say, hey, Lingle, you look a little cute today. Nobody's really ever said that, but nevertheless. <laughs> you look a little cute today. I think I'll choose you. I think I'll love you. That's not what happened. God wasn't motivated by anything of any merit on my part. God's love is intimately personal. And this is really important. In spite of the fact that the heavens and the earth belong to him, he... He has set his affection on me and on you. Talk about the love of God. And the question I ask is, do you believe in the reality of the truth of God's love? I'm so blown away by when I get to these passages that that God would even love me. That God would love us. When we walk into Malachi, we find a people who didn't really believe in the love of God. They were struggling to believe in the true love of God. They began to question the love of God. And we too are often tempted to question God's love. That's why he says there, I, I have loved you. And then it says, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? 
The question back to God reveals the heart of his people. The very fact that they were asking this question reveals they were placing themselves on the same plane as God and they were challenging God's faithfulness and they were challenging God's character. And by the very statement of the question, they were accusing God of neglect and mistreatment because they did not understand the love of God. How have you loved us? Really? You really love this God? Well, show us, because I don't feel like you love us. And we too find ourselves tempted in that way. The question and the reason for the question of God, they question God's love was God had not blessed them in a way that they expected or desired. The prosperity, the building of the temple, all of those things had not happened the way that they expected. There was a temple built, but not as they expected. God was not meeting their expectations, and when the blessings did not come, they thought that they should fire back. They fired back the question, How have you loved us? I don't know about you, but man, I had some conviction here. When life doesn't go as planned, we we have a tendency to ask the same question. When we feel let down by God, when finances don't prosper the way we expected, when trials don't disappear as we prayed for, when health is not healed as desired, when relationships don't work out the way that we wanted, when crisis suddenly erupts around us. It is here when the whisper rises up from our soul, how have you loved me, God? What is so critical here is that the people of God are basing God's love on their own standard and measurement. They are playing judge and jury over God and his ways. And that's not a good place to be, by the way, if you don't know that. The problem is their vision is so nearsighted, hearts are so hardened, minds so clouded, they expect God's love to fit into their man-made box, into their own defined limitations and their own classifications. And the presumption and the arrogance of accusing God is staggering, but we do it. James Boyce, who's commentator, he said this perhaps about the book of Malachi. Perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, Malachi describes the modern attitude of mind that considers man superior to God and that has the audacity to attempt to bring God down to earth and measure him by the yardstick of human morality. That's what we do. We try to bring God down and we measure him by our own yardstick, by our own standard. This is the attitude of our day. But God forbid that it be the attitude of his people. We are tempted to doubt God's love. And so how do we fight this? Well, we must define God's love on God's terms. In fact, if you look then in verse, last part of verse two, is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left it 
his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, by the way, Edom, just in case you don't know, Edom is the descendants of Esau. Yeah, that's going to be really important for us here in a second. If you go to the book of Obadiah, which is a minor prophet, there it talks a lot about God's dealings with, the, with Edom, the nation of Edom. He says, Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the boundaries of Israel. In other words, God will bless Israel even further than their own boundaries. So when we look, when we are tempted to doubt God's love, we need to define God's love on his terms. We must make sure we're not defining it on our on our own terms, because if we do, we will get it wrong every time. And there's some deep theological truths here that we're not going to be able to get into all of it today. And there's some beauty here that's unreal, that when we contemplate it correctly, it will just cause us to be in awe of who God is. So what God does here in light of the accusations of, of them saying he's lacking love is he compares Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is representing Israel, the nation of Israel or Judah. And Esau is representing the nation of Edom and his descendants. So what God says, if we want to talk about love, who are my chosen people? Who have I set apart? You, Israel, who's saying, how have you loved this God? God is saying, who are my people? Who is it that I've set apart? And the power of what God is saying is this, that every single Torah-minded Israelite would know this. They would know this, what, a, what Jacob did to merit being chosen over Esau. That every single one of these Israelites, if they understood the Torah, they would understand exactly what it was that Jacob did to merit the love of God or being chosen by God. And you know what it was? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. They knew that there was nothing that Jacob did to make him better than Esau. Absolutely nothing. It was the sovereign grace and choice of God Almighty whose ways are higher than ours. We know Jacob was chosen in the womb. We know that Esau was his brother. We know they had the same parents. We know that because Esau was the older brother, he probably had more privilege than even Jacob, rightly so. Yet it was God in his sovereign love who chose him. Jacob, representing the nation of Israel. Jacob, so chosen, set apart, selected, blessed, and delivered, instructed by God. When God's people were attacked, God protected them. When God's people were weak, God empowered them. When God's people were destitute, God provided for them. When God's people wandered, God disciplined them. When God's people worshiped idols, God confronted them. But as promised, he restored them, he rebuilt them, he dwelt with them, and he blessed them. You know why? Because God loved his people. More than any other nation in the world has been loved, God loves his people. 
Well, Greg, what about 400 years of bondage and captivity? What about the 70 years of of Babylonian captivity that they just came out of? What about the hatred from all the other countries around them? And I would say, but compared to Esau and Edom, who would you rather be? Would you rather be, have temporal prosperity or eternal glory in Christ? That's what he says in those following verses there, in verse three and following, that even though they try to rebuild, God's gonna tear them down because he has chosen his people. You know, it's interesting, I was thinking about this because so many times we can list all the difficulties of our lives. I ran into believers who have done it many, many times. I ran into people in the store that have walked away from the church and, and when you talk to them, they'll just say, well, you know, you know, I prayed and God didn't answer or whatever, there's all those things. And I started, I was thinking about it. Hey, listen, you know, we as Christians, we complain about misfortune. We complain about difficulties, about trials, about health, about opposition and pain and sickness. We complain about injustice and fatigue and hurt and unanswered prayers. We complain about life. But here's a biblical truth that we must always remember. Not one single born-again follower of Jesus will be complaining the moment Jesus returns. Not one. Romans 8 says, and verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In that moment when we see Jesus, no thought of pain of this life, no difficulties of this life, no struggles of this world will be on our thoughts, simply praising his name and thanking him that he has saved us and redeemed us in the name of Jesus. The problem with God's people in Malachi is that they were defining God's love as temporal things, as prosperity, as happiness. And they will be gravely, and they were gravely disappointed, and we will be too. But when we define God's love as being saved from eternal judgment, condemnation to eternal life, you know what? That is just another great day. Is God's love to you about worldly prosperity, about your own glory, or is his love that he has saved you to eternal glory? I cannot accept or define that God's love is about my easy life. God's love ultimately defined for me is that I was a sinner subject to wrath, judgment, and death. But now I am redeemed from sin and death by the sovereign love of God who has set his affections on me and bestowed upon me his grace and his mercy and his love. And if you know Jesus, you know that to be true. That the greatest demonstration of God's love is in his work of redemption. That God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The people in Malachi's day were defining God's love in their own terms, and that was a critical mistake, and they were defeated. But when you understand the love of God and in the terms in which God is defined, you realize you cannot be defeated. He says, Jacob, 
I have loved, Esau I have hated. That is a hard statement. Hated has the idea of rejection. Yet Jacob's choosing is electing love of, a, of God and the sovereign choice and pleasure of God. It is important to remember that the reason he brings this up right now in this context, it was to bring comfort and assurance to God's people that they are his chosen people. They are the people he loves. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I, can, I cannot understand in this text why God should say he hated Esau. Which Spurgeon replied, that is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God can... how God could love Jacob at all. Think about it. That's the more mind-blowing part of this. How is it that God would love us? That we would be chosen by the grace of God. The reality of, of that is so humbling. Just let it set in for a minute. That the work of God and his grace and his mercy towards us why me? Not because of some merit that something I did, but the love of God that is inexhaustible, the love of God that is unconditional, the love of God that is incomparable, the love of God, let that humble you. There is so much that we don't understand about the ways of God. When Lydia and I were on vacation, we were putting a puzzle, it was like a 500-piece puzzle we were putting this puzzle together, you know, and we enjoy puzzles. You know, and you start with this little piece and you're trying to figure out how it fits in the whole midst of everything, right? You know? And it's kind of like the puzzle of, in the way that we deal with life was that we have this one little piece of puzzle, but, you know, God's puzzle is millions of pieces. His ways and his purposes are are beyond what we can understand or comprehend. We take so much by faith and trust in the realities of who he is, and yet we'll take our one little piece and we'll, we'll have the audacity to stand there and go, but God, you did wrong. We can't even see the whole picture, and we accuse him of being, not being just. How do we do that? Is, God, is not God in his perfect wisdom and infinite knowledge able to do what he has decided is best? But for us as humanity to stand back and go, no, God, and to judge him and to say, hey, look, you, you, you're not doing things right. You didn't make me right. You didn't make me gifted. You didn't do this. You didn't give me this. You didn't, you didn't provide this. And the audacity... Oh, if we would humble ourselves before the Most High, who is full of mercy and grace, and we would just humble ourselves. In Psalm 51, verses 15 and 16, they're talking about sacrifice to the Lord. And verse 17 has been a very powerful verse in my life. There it says that the sacrifice of God, think about this, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. If we would just humble ourselves. I don't know where you're at today and maybe you're here and you've 
never have trusted in God, you've never received the, the faith or the grace of God in salvation. And today's the day. Now's the time. I would call you. I would ask, come and receive and know of the grace of God that blows me away every day. I'm amazed, I'm amazed that God would love me. Maybe somehow, even this morning, as we're sitting here, God is just opening your eyes to see his love like you've never seen before. I'm going to ask, go ahead, our praise team, come on up, and those that pray, come on up. And maybe, maybe you need to come and talk to one of them and share with them, and they can pray with you and share with you the good news. Maybe you're a child of God here this morning, and you feel distant, and you feel like, God hasn't treated you right and, and you just heard this this morning and maybe you just need to be challenged and reminded to restore your spirit, to strengthen your weakened heart and trust in the love of God for it is sufficient. Amen. Father, to you be the glory and the praise. And if we can, I can go ahead and let me go ahead and pray and give them a minute. Um, Father, I don't know how to, how to pray this morning. I'm overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy. Every time I went through this text, I found myself just flown away, Father, by your love. I pray that, Father, your people this morning would know of your love and of your grace and of your mercy. That just floods over us. You're so good. You're perfect. You're compassionate. Why would Father, um, why would any of us deserve that? But you chose. You loved us. In the sovereign way of your purposes, I, I, I am just blown away. How am I to define you? You have clearly made yourself known. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.